Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right, broadcasting from Washington, D.C. on behalf of the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Title of the show, Solving Climate Crisis is Simple, Empowered Workers, Cheney Slams GOP, IRS Hysteria Explained. You see, today we uh, have a person from Biden's administration who dispelled that lie about the IRS is coming after you. They're coming for your account. It's not true. Listen to what he said on MSNBC. Likewise, we have a Republican pundit that is trying to scare people. These wage increases that an empowered worker force is trying to get is somehow going to be inflationary. Well, folks, ask yourself this question. Normally, those with price and power, when they want more dividends paid when they want more profits, they increase the prices of products. Is that not inflationary? Which is the best type of inflation? That which is given to workers or that which is given to a bunch of rich fat cats who sit at their pool as you enslaved work for them? And we speak about uh, Cheney, who went ahead and she really let her Republican Party politicians have it. Listen, guys, before history judges you, make a change, she says. But of course, we know that won't happen. And then Tom Bauman tells us that climate change is not as difficult as one would be. When I started the show today, you notice I said broadcasting from Washington, D.C. via, of course, KPFT, Houston, Texas. Well, I am here. I, I, I told a story on our Internet program. I, I better tell a little bit here. My daughter had her second stroke. So for now, I've had to relocate temporarily to Washington, D.C. to help take care of her and make sure we bring her back. This stroke occurred three months before she completed medical school. Life is not a given, folks. Life is not, uh, you never know exactly what life is going to throw your way. So therefore, why not be kind to others? Why not make sure we have a society that works for all? Why not make sure that all those who need health care can get it? Why not make sure that we can live a life worth living? Why is it that only some have that opportunity? That's the reason we have a KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. That is the reason we have politics done right. To let people know that they can not only desire things, they can demand things, they can make society be exactly what it is, a social society that works for everyone. And having a daughter who are, who's going through her tribulations right now makes it that much more clear why we must have a society that works for all. Folks, uh, everybody goes through their tribulations. And I can tell you these volunteers at KPFT, KPFT Houston, everybody has their issues that they've had to go through. 
But guess what? Is there one issue they always fulfill? That is being here, volunteering, no pay, because this is what's important to not only us, but to us all at KPFT 90.1 FM. We're here to serve. Check this out. We have a great show for you today. Do remember, we are in fun drive right now, but you are still getting yourself a great program uh, that we work at putting together for you. Stuff that you, some that you may know on a small level, some that you may not know at all. That's why we're here. Politics Done Right, KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston. We're asking you to invest in this community radio station. But why? Because, folks, there's a lot of media out there. But it's not media that you control. It's not media that has your interests at hand. When we're talking about community radio, when we're talking about this community radio station, KPFT 90.1 FM, we're talking about a station that is solely funded by whom? You. And if it is funded by you, our loyalty is to you. In that light, I'm asking you to please call 713-526-5738 or go to kpft.org and support us. You can support us with a $25 membership, a $40 membership, or you can get any one of our gifts that you find there. Please do this in the name of Politics Done Right. Also, remember that you can get one of my several books out there. As I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom for a contribution of $120. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors for a contribution of $120. How to make America utopia. Take away the economy from those who rigged it. Pledge of $120. You can get any two of those books for $200. Any three of those books for $250. That is in, That is to support our station and all those books i promise you give you all that you need to have that conversation across the board to ensure to help us make a better america so please support us please support kpft 90.1 fm houston Call 713-526-5738 or visit kpft.org. In the name of Politics Done Right, please select one of our books, several of our books, or one of our offers. We're here for you. You can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. On YouTube Live at politics done right.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Before you get started, please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds. KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support, that is there to provide what? That nourishment that we need. 713-526-5738. KPFT.org. Visit us online. Contribute online. KPFT. 
90.1 FM. You can visit us at kpft.org. The right wing has been going berserk about there is going to be the IRS into your bank account. The IRS is coming after you. If you have $600 in your bank account, watch out. The IRS is looking for you when it's nowhere close to the truth. But you know what? A lot of times those type of statements cauterize themselves and become a reality to many. Well, let's go ahead and dispel that rumor. The reality is what we're trying to do is collect money owed by wealthy people who have been living as parasites on us all. Check this out. Mr. Secretary, thank you very much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. So in the New York Times reporting and in others that I know you've seen, there's this hysterical language about monitoring our bank accounts. They're going to be the IRS is going to be monitoring our bank accounts if if we have more than six hundred dollars. It's not what we're proposing. What we're proposing is making sure that our tax system is fair. What we know today is that wealthy Americans are less likely to pay taxes. For example, the top one percent of earners in our country country underpay taxes each year by more than $150 billion each year. They don't make money the way that the woman who works in advertising does, or a teacher, or a longshoreman does. Each one of those people get a W-2 at the end of the year that's sent to them and also sent to the IRS. It allows us to verify how much money they made and how much in taxes they need to pay. The wealthy, on the other hand, make money by selling assets, by collecting capital gains, by putting together complex structures like partnerships that allow them to sell those assets for $2 million, put that money in their bank account, and tell the IRS that they only made $100,000. The president's proposal ensures that we can find out about that money that these wealthy individuals are storing in their bank accounts by collecting two pieces of information each year. One is how much money went into a bank account and how much money came out of it. That allows us to fundamentally make the system more fair so the wealthier forced to pay their fair share. The IRS is already getting one piece of information on every bank account, and that is how much interest did that bank account pay this year? Every bank account in America reports that. And now you're saying you want the bank to also report what's the total amount of money that went into the account, what's the total amount of money that was taken out of the account. That is the entirety of the proposal. And that's what we want to collect once each year, Lawrence. And it not only helps us find the money that the wealthy aren't paying, but it also will help us reduce the chances the people who earn it, who get a W-2 each year, that woman in advertising, are audited because we're able to validate that the money you reported to the IRS is the money that went into your account and that you didn't have any large amounts going in for some other reason. There's also in the information that the Treasury's put out about it is you have no intention of actually using this in information in any way, in any enforcement procedure, involving any tax returns of less than $400,000 of personal income. The president has made a commitment that our goal is to collect the money from those individuals who are wealthy in this country who are not paying their fair share. This isn't about raising taxes. This is simply about collecting the taxes that people owe. And we're focused on collecting taxes from the wealthy because they're the least likely to pay their taxes in this country today. This is an enforcement tool 
tool, and really, it's a computer enforcement tool. This is this is going to have uh, these numbers reported from computers to other computers at the IRS, and the computers at the IRS looking at tax filers who make over four hundred thousand dollars a year. They're going to look at those cash flow numbers in the bank accounts and see if there's something weird about it. And if there's something weird about it, that will trigger that return being pushed out onto the uh, assembly line there in an IRS return center for another look. And it doesn't mean that there's an audit that's going to happen after that. It's just one of the trigger devices that can pop an account, a, a tax return out for further examination. Lawrence, for the people who pay their taxes on a regular basis, this will reduce the chances that they're audited, and it'll allow us to see information on those people who have been trying to hide money from the IRS going forward. I appreciate all the clarifications we've gotten, and I'm sure the audience appreciates the clarification you've delivered tonight. Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, Wally Adeyemo, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Wally Adeyemo cleared it all up. Uh, don't believe the lies that the right wing or they're putting out there. And it's funny because this only affects these rich people that the right wing somehow believe they have something in common with. Right. And that's who they are supporting as far as lying to you, letting you believe like there is no reason for us to look into these bank accounts. Guess what? All of you who make your money getting a wage, you get a W-2. That W-2 is actually gone directly to the IRS. Why shouldn't Rich people have the same type of scrutiny on their own income as well. This is a fraud. The advertising or the ads that are put out there to make it seem as if the Biden administration is after your checking account is nothing but a lie. Remember education. Remember awareness. Remember insightfulness and knowing things it's a lot better than the, what the, what ignorance allows you to do against your own best benefits tucked out on his minions we're talking about there's a whole lot more jobs than there are people now and workers have the power now and that is absolutely true but you know what workers have always had the power they just never asserted it because of the enslaved mentality that this economic system had placed in all in all of our minds but when we realize that we have the power whether there are shortages of jobs or not we have the power because collectively we could always be our brother's keepers and not allow corporations to get our case. But here we have now a Republican pundit that is trying to say, oh, well, if, you know, if we keep getting these wage increases, it will be inflationary. I want you to listen to the piece first. It's all good, most of it, till he has those kinds of statements. And then I want to talk about inflationary pressures based on wages. Listen to this, and then we'll take it on the other side. Kimberly, workers have never had more leverage. And when you look around, and this is like one of those things, it's like every, oh, every national news organization discovered strikes this week. But the fact <laughs> is, it is happening. Look, we've seen it in our own organization, more openness to organizing, more openness to unions. This is one of the more interesting consequences of COVID. Yeah, yeah well, I think it's an accelerator, actually, because mm-hmm. we saw that sort of movement toward unionization in places like newsrooms coming up for a couple of years before this. And then you add COVID, where people realize 
realized, okay, if I'm not making enough money, if I don't have enough benefits and you're calling me essential and forcing me to go to the job, I'm rethinking about what this means. And that really put more leverage uh, on the part of workers before companies could pay them or not pay them whatever they want to. And things have changed in a really rapid way. And, and John, this is not, you know, there was always to me a very distinct line, you know, on labor unions between Democrats and Republicans. Not with the Trump base. No, look, I, I think this is a generational moment. Yeah. For the last 20 years, people have been frightened to lose their jobs. It's not just because of the economic dislocations of the of the meltdown of 2008. Because of health care and the worries about changing your job, because of the stuff that happened as a result of 9-11, all kinds of things, almost all the power in the United States has been in the hands of employers in part because of the anxiety of the workforce. And that goes from the very poor to the very wealthy. That is an anxiety shared by everybody. And suddenly we have nine or 10 or 11 million jobs open in the United States. And that's new. And I think the psychology of the employers or these corporations have yet to shift. I mean, they know they need to pay people a lot more money. There are all these, you know, Amazon is advertising, paying people a lot more than $15 an hour and all of that. But I think at John Deere and some of these other places, my guess is that the corporate culture has not yet shifted into the idea that we got to be a lot nicer to our workforce. Yeah. I mean, look, people who in Washington are surprised by this dynamic have fundamentally misunderstood what happened in the pandemic when people with white collar jobs stayed home and complained about how hard it was to work on Zoom. And people with blue collar jobs who were essential went to work every day and braved the pandemic. I mean, if you think you had a hard time working from home or you still are where you are while you were working on zoom and you don't understand why folks who've been out in it every day are striking and are very upset i don't know what to tell you and, and our service economy is a very labor intensive exactly. economy and now we're having in you know one of the uh, let me put up some of the companies here instacart is one of the places that's that's having one of these labor i mean i i do think that this new sector of the economy that manufacturing manufacturing workers were really important to our economy in the 50s and 60s. Now it's the service The service, economy. the deliverers. Right. You the know. DoorDash, yes. the Instacart, people who and are... they're not paid very well. They're not paid very well. And so, right, are we going to have a generational change that this is COVID, we're going to look back 20 years from now and say that was the instigator for this? Or are we going to wake up three years from now and say, oh, well, it was COVID, and guess what? We're going to go back to normal because of all these other structural challenges we still have, which is, you know, getting back to healthcare. That is still a fundamental problem or, you know, so many of the other inequities that we have in our system. So the disruptors that we've expected in the past to make significant changes, at least in our politics, whether it was 9-11 or whether it was um, the pandemic, didn't make big structural changes to our politics. But our economy... That's a whole different story. Speaking of the economy, though, this is all happening at a time of rising and apparently non-transitory inflation. And if wages have to go up significantly, that's inflation, too. This is a potential inflationary spiral. You want to talk about political consequences. I'm sorry that people can talk about how this might be great. This might be great for Democrats because it's new activism and all of that. This is not good for Biden either way. It's not good for Democrats either way. They have the House, the Senate. 
Senate and the presidency, and we could be looking at inflation continuing to go up. And- yeah, you can have fears about inflation, but the, the structure was unsustainable. You had this gig economy where people mm-hmm. were working second and third jobs just to keep food on the table, just to pay for the health care that, that the law required them to have. That was going to be unsustainable. Conflagration of, of issues really brought it to the fore. And yes, you have these open jobs, but I think when you look at it study after study, it shows if you pay people more, they will take the jobs. It's really shifting from that corporate perspective that they can have large profits to saying, no, we actually, to be profitable, you need to treat your employees well. And that is so important. If you want to be profitable, treat your employees well. But here's what they don't, and I wish these pundits would articulate it a little bit better. They talk about increasing wages. In other words, that's on one side of the balance sheet. Increases uh, inflation. Why? Because to pay people more, you have to raise the prices of your goods if you want to keep the profits the same. But here's the other part of the equation they don't tell you. To constantly have rising profits, to constantly have the rising price of stocks, you always hear people talk about growth, growth, growth. There are two ways to attain growth, either the totality of growth or the delta of growth. The delta of growth means you reduce all your expenses so that you actually have more profits and those profits go to the few who own the corporation. Or you simply raise prices again so that the profits will be as high as those who are investing want it to be. So they talk about inflationary pressures caused by wages. What about inflationary uh, causes by the amount that you're paying the investors, the millions, the billions, the trillions of dollars that have gone in the in the pharmaceutical industries to the shareholders, that's inflationary. And it didn't go to the employees. It went to the shareholders extracting money out of the middle class, extracting money out of the poor, out of our taxes, out of the government. That's inflationary. Has nothing to do with wages. Let's understand economics appropriately. And if we did understand economics, we would under, and, and that's why we need to teach that to our people. That's why people need to listen to these programs. That's why people need to promote these programs, why they need to share these programs. Because here is the deal. Our wages, people say, well, we don't want to pay the employees so much. And you'll even have some employees saying that. If, if, if wages go up too much, it's going to be inflation and it'll cause a, a recession. And then you'll say, well, what a, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If profit gets too high, that's coming out of the same pot. Isn't that going to cause a recession for having profits too high? Look, Uh, What we have and we've had in this country since its inception is the theft of the labor and intellect of the American people. We have an economic system that abuses people. It is a, uh, it, it was, it first started as slavery and indentured servitude with a few employees. Now we have a complete form of what I call antiseptic slavery for most people. And when we understand that, we will start trying to liberate ourselves from an economic system that depends on paying us less than we are worth. And anytime we ask for more, they say that is inflationary or we'll have to raise prices. Well, you drop your profits. You drop your profits, which means you are sitting on your butt doing nothing while other people work for your benefit. If that isn't antiseptic slavery, I don't know what is. My God, you've got to see this. Liz Cheney took no prisoners. Let's go ahead and play the speech that she gave. 
There is no conceivably applicable privilege that could shield Mr. Bannon from testimony on all of the many other topics identified in this committee's subpoena. Because he has categorically refused to appear, we have no choice but to seek consequences for Mr. Bannon's failure to comply. Those consequences are not just important for this investigation. They are important for all congressional investigations. Mr. Bannon's and Mr. Trump's privilege arguments do, however, appear to reveal one thing. They suggest that President Trump was personally involved in the planning and execution of January 6th, and this committee will get to the bottom of that. Let me add one further thought, principally for my Republican colleagues. All agree that America is the greatest nation on the face of God's earth. Truth, justice, and our Constitution have made America great. Almost every one of my colleagues knows in your hearts that what happened on January 6th was profoundly wrong. You all know that there is no evidence of widespread election fraud sufficient to have changed the results of the election. You all know that the Dominion voting machines were not corrupted by a foreign power. You know these claims are false. Yet former President Trump repeats them almost daily. And he has now urged Republicans not to vote in 2022 and 2024. This is a prescription for national self-destruction. I ask my colleagues, please consider the fundamental questions of right and wrong here. The American people must know what happened. They must know the truth. All of us who are elected officials must do our duty to prevent the dismantling of the rule of law and to ensure that nothing like that dark day in January ever happens again. Did you see what Liz Cheney did? She itemized each thing one by one as far as the fallacies that we have the Republicans telling their pew. But you know what? Uh, I am not a Liz Cheney fan, but I tell you that the fact that she came out the way she came out and said the made those statements about the, it, there was no real voter fraud, the voter machine is not real, it's not the, the election was not stolen, and all that good stuff. While it won't really have anything, the, the, the crazies won't see straight. There are quite a few Republicans, even ones that will vote for Donald Trump, that will look at that and give it a second look. Good job, Liz Cheney. Keep up the good work. We have a very special guest for us with us today, Tom Bowman, president of Bowman Change Inc. and author of What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple and co-author of Empowering Climate Action in the United States. Tom Bowman has never bought the idea that some problems are too complex to solve. With razor thin like precision, he slices through the Gordian knot of despair dispiriting misperceptions that lead to a sense of defeat when it comes to the climate crisis. The result is an inspiring and practical narrative that will leave readers feeling uplifted and empowered to create a future they are eager to embrace. Welcome to Politics Done Right, Tom. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Amber. Well, look, first of all, let me ask you this. Um, It's a stupid question, but it's the first one I've got to ask. Why did you write the book? 
Yeah, it's a good question, actually. It's not stupid at all. I've been thinking about a book like this for a long, long time because I've been working for the last, oh, 10 or 15 years. No, actually, about almost 20 years on communication about the climate crisis uh, and science communication. And I've always been flummoxed by the fact that I took action to decarbonize my business. I feel empowered to work on it. I see other people who do, but the surveys all show that the vast majority of people feel dispirited. They sit on the sidelines. They don't think they have a role to play. And so I've studied that and, and the opportunity came up last year with Changemakers Books to, to write a book very quickly. And it was, a, it was a great way to sort of gel all this thinking and work I'd been doing for quite a long time. Let me tell you what I love about your book. First of all, mm-hmm. it's not very long. It's the That's point. Right. <laughs> you don't fill it with a whole lot of fluff. You know, That's I write books as well. And, um, you know, at, at 200 pages or so, uh, which is about what I need to tell my the entire stories that I normally tell. That's about all you need. But, you know, somehow we're getting these books that are just so, you know, so, big. Right. so I appreciate that. And you've used every word to tell a story. Now, um, before we get specifically into your book, um, you said you feel that people are dispirited about the climate. Uh, don't you think this has a lot to do with the different forces that are making them dispirited? In other words, forces that don't feel uh, climate change, or that, that, that what is required to uh, mitigate climate changes in their interests. So instead, what they do is they just pollute people's minds. Your thoughts? They do. There's a very active campaign that's been going on for a very long time, led by ideological libertarians and the fossil fuel industry to keep people from taking action. And they, and so they question the science, they question uh, governance. They say that if we solve the climate crisis, government will intrude in our lives and ruin our freedoms and take them away, um, that our economy will crash. None of those things has to be true. Um, but it's an intentional campaign to protect our own financial interests. You know, sadly, uh, you said none of those things have to be true. They could be true, but it's also going to be true that if we do absolutely nothing, that what we know as America today, it's coastlines, it's uh, the peace in the uh, the peace and the weather and all of that will be no more. So, I mean, uh, uh, we don't have a choice but to change either way that we go, correct? That's absolutely right. And we're feeling the effects today. I live in California where the wildfires have been unlike, they've been unreal. I've never seen anything like this in, in all the time I've lived and grew up in California. The air is choking every year, you know, um, and whole communities are being burned to the ground. There's there's intense storms in the Midwest and floods that are hundred year floods happening every few years. Um, so yes, exactly. We're already into it. And the question is how far are we going to allow it to go? Yeah. It's amazing because a, a lot of people think we have to burn everything that we have in the ground, not realizing that in the primordial years, when those things were being formed, we had different, different organisms on the planet that mm-hmm. had different requirements that could ha- that could absorb that sort of energy. But guess what? They died out. And that's, that's the remnants of their deaths, you know? Yeah. And you think about the fossil fuels in the ground have, have accumulated over millions and millions, tens, hundreds of millions of years. And the ad- idea that we would burn them all up in just a few generations 
and they never exist again or wouldn't exist for hundreds of millions of years more. That just seems crazy to me. And unnecessary, right? Absolutely unnecessary. Did you know, I mean, today, I don't know when the podcast will go live, but to, tonight Ford is apparently going to release. It's F-150. a 150. Yes. That's a game changer. That's the most popular vehicle in America by a mile. And if that comes out electric and it's better than the gasoline powered car, look out. Cause that means there's going to be a lot of hunger for it. Well, you know, Rachel Maddow did a, a great piece on it yesterday. And one of the most important parts that I think she did that, that, that gives a lot of credence to electric cars is the ability to control torque. And the reason I'm saying that, I don't know if you're an engineer or not, I'm an engineer by training and I understand those concepts. And it was amazing watching that truck pull uh, several trains, Yes, right? And something that a geared truck really wouldn't be easy, wouldn't easily do. And um, I think when those kind of folk who like pickup trucks see that, they'll see that environmental uh, being environmentally friendly does not mean, mean you have to compromise anything else. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, the role of the business or the entrepreneur is to create green products that people actually like better than the products that came before. And, you know, um, Teslas are amazing cars. Uh, yeah. The Sun Leaf is a fun little car as far as it goes. Uh, the other electric cars are fun. But a truck is practical. I mean, there are things you can do in a truck that you can't do in a sedan. And uh, and so to see a pickup truck that's hugely popular go electric is going to, you know, depending on what they've come up with, is has the potential to be a real change maker. Of course, that means that uh, we have to get that infrastructure throughout the country with the 500,000 or so charging, charging stations around the country to ensure that those folks who make the leap and buy those cars, they do just fine. Yeah, that's right. And for a lot of people, I mean, most people would put a charger in at home unless right. you live in a, in a condo complex or an apartment building where you don't have control over that. But uh, if you do have, you know, control and you can put a charger in at your home, you just charge it up at night and it's ready to go the next day. Right. And you've got to drive an awful long way before you need to recharge. Most people aren't driving two or 300 miles a day. You do it on long trips and you need the capacity to charge up a bit. But uh, but for daily driving, charging it overnight is easy. Right, right. And and probably not all that expensive as, as well, given the economy of these uh, new devices that are coming out. Yeah, that's right. They're cheap. It's Electricity costs a lot less than gasoline. And it doesn't spike. It doesn't go up right. and down and up and down. And you never have to stop at a gas station. And then, of course, uh, with, with a lot of people that get that, they're probably going to have solar cells on their homes, et cetera, mm-hmm. to sort mm-hmm. of mitigate that. Okay. Um, are we too late from your book? Are we too late <laughs> Yeah. to solve that- the crisis? Uh, f- first of all, we're talking uh, about the book uh, titled what if solving the climate crisis is simple? And, you know, um, I'm going to tell you, Tom, I've always thought that it was simple if we wanted to make it so. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the the objections come to those who are vested in the old technologies and don't and see that move to be a bit more expensive than they would like to make. So is it too late? Yeah, that's such a great question. And the, I think the answer resoundingly is no. We're on a we're on a trajectory, right? We've changed the climate some already. We can't go backward. 
unless we invest super heavily in in technologies to pull carbon out of the air mm-hmm. um, and that's that may become attractive in the future you know it's in development now as technology but we can choose how far we let this advance and and we've been taught most of us about climate change by scientists and scientists study complicated things complex systems uh, the climate system is really complex and so we've been taught to think that it's really complex and we've been taught to think that the responses to it have to be really complex but that's just an interpretation that's just a, a way of looking at it and if we set that aside for a minute we discover that really all we have to do is stop burning fossil fuels and do it very quickly and when you think about that it makes the it makes the climate crisis accessible to everyone, to every business, to every household, to every person, uh, to every local government. And that's a lot easier to deal with than a, than what looks like it's a huge global problem. You know what is interesting, Tom? Um, and as, as bad as this pandemic was, where we lost hundreds of thousands of Americans and millions of people around the world, what I think this showed us, however... With the decline in usage of gasoline and fossil fuels, we didn't die. We weren't superbly uncomfortable. Uh, The economy was a lot lot less, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, we consumed a lot less. That's right. And and, and still, most Americans got a bit fatter. Yes, they did. (laughs) uh, So the truth of the matter is, the pandemic, as bad as it was, and, and I love your thoughts on this, seemed to prove that we could have massive reduction in fossil fuels, use of fossil fuels, without having a, a, a devastating effect on our personal economies. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. We've been taught to think that society can only change very, very slowly and very, very incrementally. But last March, a year ago, the world suddenly stayed home mm-hmm. everywhere, worldwide. And it all happened in about three or four days, you know, when the when the World Health Organization said this is a pandemic, it's really dangerous. Everybody stayed home. And what happened? The streets got quiet. The sky cleared up. The air got fresher over major cities. We were all living in fear. But but if you took the time to notice, our world became a more pleasant place and people were finding ways to connect. You know, there's this great video from Italy of of you see these wine glasses attached to long sticks and they're clinking. And as the camera zooms out, you realize these people are on their balconies across this narrow street from one another, having a happy hour together in their isolated pods in their apartments. Right. But they're finding ways to connect with their friends and neighbors. And now we've discovered most people who've worked at home don't want to have to commute and go back to a corporate office. Um, They'd rather work at home and they can be productive at home. This could change the world in big ways, and it happened in a heartbeat. You know, it's amazing because I told uh, when this started to occur, I did a few of my programs, my shows, and I said, you know, this is going to change how we work forever. And amazingly, companies like Woolworks, they are sort of concerned because it doesn't fit their business model. And they're now trying to shame people back from working at home to going back to the office. Notice I said working. I didn't say slobbing at home. Right. That's right. Working at home because it affects their bottom line. So there again, once again, we see where companies are, they're not looking at the 
better, what's best for us all or for the environment. Right. Just for I, their own personal <laughs> bottom line. You know, I've been a business owner myself for about 30 years, small business. And, and you have to, you have financial obligations you have to meet. But if you own a business, you're in the, your primary business, no matter what you do, is adaptation. You're changing, the markets are changing, the rules are changing, yes. the economies are changing. You're always thinking, how do I remain viable in this new environment I'm in? Exactly. That's every day. So, uh, yes, there are there are ups and downs. You win some, you lose some in business. And that's not fun, you know, for anybody. We need to create a soft landing for people as best we can and create new opportunities. But But that's happening all around us. New opportunities are emerging. And we shouldn't be afraid of that. And, you know, uh, one of the, the benefits of that, again, is we get a profit and that's that's the whole rationale. We take the risk and we get a profit. Those of us who do these business things. Now, what do you mean by hang the climate crisis upside down? Yeah. So I described earlier this Gordian knot of complex systems that that is the climate. You know, it's the atmosphere and the oceans and the polar ice caps and the way and the biosphere and the way plants and animals interact with atmospheric chemistry and all of this complicated stuff. And then we've been taught that when you when you want to solve a piece of the climate puzzle, it, we've been talking about electric cars and transportation, you start pulling on that. And now you're pulling on technology and supply chains and international finance. And those things affect food supply and energy generation and and geopolitics. And all of a sudden you feel like you're pulling on. You started with one thread and you're pulling on this enormous knot that you can't figure out how to untie. That's what it feels like to most people. I I was an art student in college and I was working on a painting one day that I just couldn't make work. You know, I, I tried changing colors. I tried shifting the composition. It was just a, a disaster. It just wasn't working. And my teacher came up behind me and he said, I tell you what you do, hang it upside down and go home. Because when you see it tomorrow, upside down, you're going to see what's wrong with it because you'll see it completely differently. Right. right. And as a design office owner, I literally did that many times. And that's how you figured out which designs were working and which ones to throw away. But it also applies to other kinds of issues. In other words, if you're stuck, if you can't figure out how to solve a problem, ask yourself, is there an assumption that I've made that's part of every solution I've tried? Is it a require a technical requirement that somebody gave me? Is it an assumption I'm making about how things work? Um, what is the one thing that's consistent in all of your in all of your attempts to solve it? When you find it, the bigger it is, the better. The more sacrosanct it is, the better. Set it aside and see what happens. In my experience, what happens is you suddenly discover all kinds of new ways to think about it, new opportunities, and you and expand the horizons. Exactly. And, and it, so it disrupts this familiar pattern of thinking that keeps us stuck. And the assumption that we make that's most troublesome, I think, on climate is that it's too complex for you and me, right? Only technical elites somewhere, somewhere in the world are going to come up with a master plan for the globe and everybody's going to buy into it magically and we're going to solve the climate crisis. And we all know it doesn't work that way. Right. But if we set that aside and we say, what's left? Well, all we have to do is stop burning fossil fuels and we need to do it quickly because we don't want this to continue. And 
and we don't want to fail. So there's a slogan in the book, right? Stop burning fossil fuels well before mid-century and absolutely positively do not fail. When, when that becomes your mantra, you start looking at everything you do in your workplace and in your home life a little differently. And I know this from experience because I did this with my small business, you know, it was a 2000 foot building and 12 people. We were, we got measured by the climate registry. So I had independent measurement of our carbon footprint and, and we reduced our emissions by two thirds in 15 months, saved money. And nobody could tell that our lifestyle had changed. Right. Right. But you made a difference. But, and it shows how much waste we take for granted in our normal way of thinking. And that when we disrupt it by hanging the picture upside down, we discover, oh, there are ways to solve this and make the world I'd really rather live in. We recently had a woman on here. I don't remember her name. She talked about waste and it was amazing how much we waste and how easy it was to mitigate that waste. So, I mean, just doing little things that all of us could do from Ziploc bags to other things, you know. Uh, and I'll tell you a little story that 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 reveals how dumb we can all be, how stupid I was. Um, our business was to design exhibits for museums and trade shows, things like that. And, and we didn't build them. We had exhibit builders uh, who were located about 60 miles from our office in Southern California. So people had to commute through Los Angeles traffic to get to work. And then you drive to the, to the meeting when you had to have a meeting at the shop. And then you drive back 60 miles to the office and then tired frustrated, stressed. You still had your deadlines to meet. You'd stay late and you'd go home late. And we lived with this for years. We just thought it was the way business worked because mm-hmm. everybody did. Well, two of my employees moved all the way to Palm Springs and had to commute all the way to Long Beach. That's a, over a hundred miles through rush hour traffic every single day. At least they carpooled, but we lived with this for a couple of years. And when we decided to decarbonize, it made me look at that situation differently and say, holy cow, that's a lot of pollution, right? And so we tried an experiment. You two guys who live in Palm Springs, you can only come to work once a week and you work at home the rest of the time. And if anybody needs to meet with a shop, schedule it so it's the first thing in your day or the last thing in your day. So you do it on the way to work or on the way home. And it took about a month for people to adjust to a new style. And then I saw the spirits in the office get lighter. People were happier. They weren't so mm-hmm. tired. They, were, they got to go home on time. They weren't so stressed, right? And this is what we had always wanted, but we'd never gone looking for the thing that was holding us up, right? We're all doing this with carbon every day and with waste every day. And all, our, all most of us have to do is turn the picture upside down so we start to see that stuff and say, holy cow, I can eliminate that waste. You know, Tom, we could we could go through all these things that I think enlighten quite a few people for for hours. Unfortunately, we only have 30 minutes. So there's a couple of chapters I want to discuss with you. And and this one kind of the name, I, I think you were trying to be a little bit. What's the word that I want to say? You wanted to put a little sting here. You said um, climate justice and a white male. Mm-hmm. Explain yourself. Yeah. Last year was the was the year that. Americans everywhere just saw just how how violent and and unstable the lives of African Americans people of color are in the United States. We've always heard from climate scientists that that low-income communities and people of color suffer the most. 
and have the fewest resources, right? And we know that there is structural racism in our society. But we saw it with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. It just, it, it came home to everybody. And one of the things I heard people saying is, you white people need to start having your own conversations about race. Um, and I'm a white male, right? I, I, I benefit from all the privileges of being white, well-educated and male. And so I wanted to write a chapter that starts to confront that question. And in, in it's, it's, um, it's, I don't present the answers. I don't, it, I would say it's a little clunky, you know, I mean, how can we not be clunky when we stumble into this? Um, because in our own lives as, as white males, whoever, however we're situated, we learn to accept cultural racism as we progress through school and into our careers. And, uh, and we understand the reward system that we have to play by in order to be successful. And that, that is a very biased system. And so we find ourselves in this situation and we don't want to be here and we don't know how to get out of it. And, and I've been really, really fortunate in the last year to work on this action for climate empowerment project with a diverse group of people in relationship with with indigenous leaders, people of color from Puerto Rico and the United States, um, members of the historically black colleges and universities, and to begin to have the experience of relationship that allows that allows a person who's uncomfortable about racism and is a white person start to be in genuine relationships with people that can make a difference. And that's, I think, what a lot a lot of people need to do. Um, so I, I was trying to sort of, um, uh, uh, just be vulnerable and honest and say, Hey, look, I'm no better than anybody else. I grew up in this world and I've unconsciously adopted all of the problems. How, how do we get beyond this together? Well, you know, I was, uh, when I saw the chapter at first, I kind of giggled and then I said, let me, let me read bits and pieces of this thing. And I like, I mean, first of all, it, it, it's good that in the chapter you were able to express that there is in fact systemic racism and environmental, uh, the environmental impact also plays a big role in there. I mean, cities are, uh, places where uh, people of color live in general because of the way it's structured it's hotter and suffer more climate damage than than places that are more wealthy which more wealthy generally defines more white and i, I was glad to see that you had the that you were able to stitch that into the book because i think over the overbearing um statements of racism all of the times is better catered in a fashion that people can, you know, can actually see with the, the lives. I think you did a great job of that. But, you know, my question to you is, um, how long have you realized of, uh, oh, first of all, I, I, there's a thought. Grogan, the podcast Grogan, I don't know if you, you know who he is or, or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a, he got in a bit of trouble because his statement was, because of the wokeness of society today, uh, soon white men just have to shut up. And I just read that this morning and I hadn't planned on asking you this, but since you had that chapter, I said, what, what's your thought about that? Because I, I really like to know if that's how a lot of white men are feeling right now, that because um, everybody's yeah. now saying we want a piece of that action, if that's how white men are feeling. Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words um, for, for writing that chapter. I'll tell you that some of my white friends 
have said, what, why is that chapter in there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And this is, this is reveals our starting point. Right. And, um, and there is a, there's a degree to which um, people feel insecure with their own success or their own position. Right. We're always trying to, to ensure that, that our social position is sound. Mm-hmm. And, and for an awful lot of white people, I think um, our, our common thought is that if we give more power to people of color, we're going to lose power ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that feels scary. And when you finally dig into this and you finally are in relationship with people who don't look like you and come from different backgrounds from you and you, and you, and you care for their welfare as much as you care for their own. They're your friends. They're your colleagues. They're, you discover that, that you discover what they have to live with that you don't have to live with. I can tell you from my own experience, it's like, man, give these people power. (laughs) They need power, uplift them, give them power. I don't need to hold it. Um, I, I told somebody, you know, you don't get to be the white savior when you get into relationship with people of color, the good news is you don't have to be the white savior. Right. What you is discover that, that this is really, this is a dialogue. Um, let me, let me tell you something, Tom, voices like yours are necessary, especially as a white man. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that, that you, you, you are, you're more out there, more in, in people's spaces to, to, to promote that kind of a message. And because I think it is so important, uh, I, the, the, the good thing about it is this, um, those who have lived through the lack of privilege are not trying to take away privilege from anybody. Those who have had the lack of power are not trying to disempower anybody. They're just seeking to have the same level. And if that message could be conveyed to specifically the white man that, that, you know, Uh, you need not fear that what some, and it's interesting because it's a minor amount of, I mean, that's just how power works. It's, it's not a race thing. It's a, I mean, and, and, and I get in trouble a lot of for saying this, but once we, if you really believe that race is a social construct, Mm -hmm. you have to understand what racism is then. And then you look at pigmentation and physical characteristics and all of that quite a bit differently. Yeah. And I'm at the stage in life where that I've, I only look at race as a social construct. So I have no fears about any of it. So I hope men like you, white men like you, in, in, in the messaging that you have with your environmentalism and all the great books that you write, that you're, you're able to cater it as you have in your book here. I just found it fascinating. Just like your white friends asked you, why did you have that chapter in there? I look at you and I said, you're a smart man to weave that <laughs> chapter in there. Well, thank you. It's the beginning of a, of a conversation that it's my throwing a stone in the water as a beginning of a conversation. Um, you have to learn to listen, you know, you have to stop we have to stop assuming we have the answers and we, we work hard to become experts in our lives, in our careers and in various ways. And then we think we're experts, right? Mm -hmm. We think we're the people who know, and that couldn't be further from the truth. 
Um, there are technical things I know, but that doesn't mean I know how to solve a uh, find right. a solution in a community somewhere else or even here. It needs to be created together. Um, and when you finally are willing to let go of that, and it and it's disruptive, it, it's a little uncomfortable at first. But if you'll take the step, then you just discover how much goodwill and capacity and and opportunity there is to create the world we really have really always really wanted want. to. Let me yeah. tell you, Tom, um, it's been actually a very a pleasure speaking to you. Um, and one other thing, most people are good. I mean, everybody, most people say. are good. I Look, uh, we've been speaking to Tom Bauman, president of Bauman Change Inc. and author of What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? It's, I usually ask beforehand, is there something you'd like to say that I forgot to ask you? <laughs> um, if people are are really intrigued by this, I'm going to give you a website that people could, that's not my own. Uh, mine's kind of obvious, tombowman.com. There's a, there's a website called ACE, A-C-E framework.us that reports on dialogues just like this with a really diverse group of people who are seeking to make climate change in the United States in really productive ways. Tom Bowman, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds. Keep KPFT in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. 90.1 FM, Houston. They can listen as well at kpft.org. They can contribute to us at kpft.org. Remember that you can get one of my several books out there. As I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom for a contribution of $120. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors for a contribution of $120. How to make America utopia. Take away the economy from those who rigged it. Pledge of $120. You can get any two of those books for $200. Any three of those books for $250. That is in, That is to support our station. They can call us at 713-526-5738, but it's at kpft.org. Folks, we are at the end of the program. I hope you enjoyed what we had to offer. We will continue to give you fresh data, fresh programming every single week from Politics Done Right. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage.